0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. plus.
0: The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily represent those of any organization, including one generation away. In America it was free. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com. Going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. Liberty, the very basis for the
2: great experiment known as the U.S. Constitutional Republic, the foundation upon which all our rights and freedoms are built, our bulwark against tyranny. But is liberty still the defining characteristic of this country? As we approach the end of 2022, welcome back into Liberty Nation Radio, a production of LibertyNation.com and heard from coast to coast on the Radio America Network. This is Tim Donner, a longtime host of this program and now frequent contributor, sitting in this week for Mark Angelides. As the unique creatures known as Americans, we crave liberty and we crave order, but order won't do without liberty. And liberty won't do without order. So where do we stand right now with the unique principle upon which the United States of America was founded, ordered liberty? It's the tension between order and liberty that we've sought to manage over the almost 250 years of this unique constitutional republic. And the tension has boiled over in recent years with the left demanding ever more order and the right demanding restoration of the liberty, which has always served as the foundation for our way of life. We will examine these questions today from multiple angles with our power panel, the political with Liberty Nation, socio-political correspondent, Jeff Charles, the legal with LN Legal Affairs editor, Scott Cosenza, and the economic with Liberty Nation's economic guru, Andrew Moran. So Jeff, Let's start with you as you see it. How did Liberty do on the ballot in these 2022 midterm elections?
3: Yeah, Tim, I don't think Liberty did very well. I think this was just more indicative of an overall reality in America. Um, You know, I think that people increasingly are not wanting to be free, are not really understanding what that means. I mean, we saw how the nation reacted over the COVID-19 pandemic with the lockdown orders they told everybody it'd just be a couple of weeks to slow the spread but i mean people who are savvy knew that it wasn't going to end after 2 weeks and look at how much the nation was willing to tolerate and i think that was even reflected in these past midterm elections where the people who were pushing for those onerous restrictions as well as others were not really soundly punished for what they were doing despite the fact that they have mismanaged the the running of the country since they they took power this m- these midterms were not a repudiation of those who are threatening liberty. And I think that that's where it stands today right now. So I'm hoping that's a kind of a dire analysis. So hopefully my colleagues will have something more more positive to, to say.
2: Well, Scott, what about you? How did liberty do as you see it in these midterm elections? I tend to think that liberty wasn't on the ballot
4: per se. Uh, and so it's, it's- what we what we saw during these elections, I don't think is, you know, we can attribute to a vote up or down on liberty. But I, I think that Jeff is right in one fundamental way, which is that the people who did uh, do so many lockdowns and were were responsible for so much of, of you know the affronts to liberty that we've suffered recently did not seem to pay a strong price. I think they can chalk that up to the successful salesmanship that somehow. There was a vote on the existential nature of uh, a constitutional democracy uh, at the polls. You know, that that's democracy at stake. Right. I think that was an effective sales pitch, which took that out of it. And I'm hoping, Tim uh, and Jeff and Andrew, that uh, at some point soon, we'll see a reckoning for for Liberty, for those who did, uh, you know, author those lockdowns. And, And there's been some. Indication that we will, Tim, we we've seen a, a couple of measures now to grant like some kind of amnesty for for some of these folks for for what they've done. And that's all I think about a guilty conscience and a fear for for what's coming. And I hope it does come. I hope that the, the whirlwind reaches those uh, scolds and censors who kept us locked down uh, in, in a way that I thought was, you know, unconstitutional, illegal, immoral. You know, you pick your your parade of
2: horrible yeah, so several adjectives you could use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, not to mention adverbs, Andrew, as you see it, to what extent are voters uh, demanding more liberty as opposed to more order?
1: I don't see anyone demanding more liberty. It seems like every election between uh, 2016 and probably heading into 2024 is just propping up Donald Trump endorsed Republican candidates. All I see when it comes to the tw- the last election, the midterm elections, I can only think of two names th- who who are re- really liberty oriented candidates who won their re-elections handily was Senator Rand Paul and Representative Thomas Melsey. Anyone else, I can't think of anyone else who, who really were champions of liberty, who won their elections or lost their elections. So, Overall, I don't see voters demanding liberty. I just see voters trying to kick the other guy out and just, you know, be- benefiting the the programs that they want. I mean, Democrats, their whole thing was give me more abortions, let me kill more babies, and Republicans were just for a lot, a lot of Republicans was let me uh, let me help the uh, Trump candidate win. So,
2: Jeff, how did the pandemic and its ongoing, consistent, persistent challenge to both order and liberty? change the way that we view both order and liberty?
3: You know, that's a that's a tough question. I think it really I think it really showed who's for liberty and who's not. And, you know, what I was saying earlier about uh, the the liberty in the midterms, you know, referring to Democrats, because there are plenty of Republicans who were more than willing to use that pandemic to lock people down, to restrict schools, to restrict, you know, even just going to to the grocery store and, you know even, even in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott signed a, yet another emergency order for COVID and that, and he's not the only one. Republicans are in, in this in, instance, just seem to be diet Democrats, really. So I think that, you know, it really showed who was for liberty and 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 who wasn't. And unfortunately, as far as leadership goes, you don't have a whole lot of people who um, were wanting to preserve liberty. Now, now at the grassroots level, You have people from all walks of life and from all political stripes who are pushing for liberty, even beyond just the COVID issue. But but none of those people seem to be in charge of either party party right now.
2: Indeed, both parties uh, don't seem to be putting a premium on liberty. Scott, did you see the pandemic as an excuse used by the left to control the population? to a greater extent, which seems to be their usual method of operation.
4: You say it to me like there's some debatable question there. I I don't understand (laughs) how how the response
3: is. I'm I'm giving
2: you a softball. (laughs) I'm putting it on a tee for you to hit out of the
3: park, counselor. Right on the bag, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Uh, it's because you're talking to a lawyer, and lawyers never ask questions that they don't already know the answer to. (laughs) Precisely, thank (laughs) you, Um, Jeff.
4: The answer, Tim, is yes, I, I do see that. I mean, just from the, you know, I think for me, the moment that uh, that it revealed and by the way, I want to just reference Jeff's earlier answer when he he had said that uh, at one point that everybody knew it was going to be longer than two weeks. But that wasn't the case for me. I actually thought, gee, they're going to have trouble locking everyone down for a whole two weeks. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that this that my fellow Americans would would take to such re- drastic restrictions for so long for me, Tim. I remember when a guy uh, in California, I think he was like kayaking or something like that, but he was out in the middle of nowhere on a beach and he got uh, basically arrested uh, by the authorities. And that to me was the moment when I really had, you know, sort of tragic thoughts about our liberty and what the state was doing that, you know, if they said, hey, we're shutting down the schools or they have to have masks, but go outside and, you know, go to a park or something like that, uh, you know, that would at least be somewhat consistent. But the idea that we had to be masked, locked down, and then, of course- uh, jabbed however many times we're up to now um, it's profoundly disturbing and was used by the uh, those progressives to, to, to crush our Liberty. Yep. That's a, that's but a good affirmative.
1: But it was okay, Scott, because if you were locked down, you got, you you still got all this stimulus money, you got all this free money, you got sweetened oh. unemployment benefits. So, Hey, you got, you got all this free stuff for just stimulus sitting home. Money, obesity, Netflix.
4: diabetes, uh, <laughs> whatever. Right.
1: But also, yeah. if you want to add to Scott's point, you know it wasn't even just you know being alone and kayaking. These parents who brought their kids to playgrounds were, were arrested because uh, they they put tape around uh, the playground. Even though, even though, if you look at all the data, all the data show that outdoor transmission contracting uh, COVID outdoors was very minimal. I mean, even in the early days in China, if yes. you ever what's about it, Chinese data, you know, one person was sitting on a bench, they got COVID. That was it when it comes to uh, getting infected with coronavirus. I think it's also worth
3: noting the mental impact that this has had on a lot of people when it comes to engineering the way they think. I mean, I hate to use the term brainwashing, but it's like every time I go out now, if I see I'm I'm in Texas and if I see somebody still wearing a mask, I'm like, what are you doing? Because one of one, it was never meant to protect you. It was supposed to protect everybody else ostensibly. But now, I mean, COVID is 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 pretty much on it's, it's already out so like you're still wearing a mask i still see, every now and then i still see people in their cars alone wearing masks so i think that fear the fear that they used to uh, to justify these actions it, it still remains and that's scary it reminds me about nine eleven. they used the fear of terrorism to pass the patriot act right yeah. so to me it's just the same story just in a different situation okay well thanks jeff
2: And Andrew and Scott, we're going to take a quick break and then come back to return to our roundtable discussion on the state of liberty and order
0: circa 2022. For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides. We are back on a roundtable
2: discussion on the state of liberty and order, circa 2022, joined by Liberty Nation's power triangle, Scott Cosenza, Jeff Charles and Andrew Moran. So let's discuss the law. Scott, the Supreme Court is now squarely in the hands of a constitutionalist majority on abortion and likely affirmative action and other issues. How will their game changing decisions affect American culture and liberty as you see it uh, in ways that
4: are more profound than we can imagine? If we just take one thing, which is the affirmative action, uh, as you mentioned, and let's say that uh, that goes uh, the way that so many liberty activists hope, which is that uh, the Supreme Court will declare that you can't uh, discriminate against uh you know, whites and Asians in favor of uh, predominantly black and brown people uh, in, in higher education, if if that passes muster at the Supreme Court or or, or uh, if they overturn the current precedent, Tim, which allows for that discrimination, which I expect they will, that then I think will cascade to private enterprise. And I think we will see uh, a, a retreat from this uh, kind of woke, Uh, hiring practices that we see in many places, which value not achievement, but instead identity politics. And so the closer you are to the favorite identity, you know, if you're a trans or non-binary woman of color or non-binary person of color, that would be, I think like the highest Make sure to get that right, Scott. Yeah, it Uh, is tough. You You don't want to mess that up. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Cancel. You know, the more value, you know, the more kind of checkboxes you can get, the, then the higher value you are um, at so many um, uh, companies and certainly in government and, and in higher education. And I think we'll we'll see the end of that. You know, the end will be in many years, uh, hence the decision. But the, the the ball kind of retreating or the tide of that really just race based and, and uh, uh, sort of victimhood based hiring, I think will be in full retreat. Uh, starting the the day that that is declared illegal at, at the colleges. And then, of course, if the colleges can't discriminate on the basis of race, that has huge implications for our benefit because we then get uh, actually we really do benefit from having the best minds, uh, teaching the best minds uh, to do, you know, whatever it is they're going to do in the marketplace of ideas once they graduate, rather than these race or sex
2: based preferences. So, Jeff, the. Yeah. Uh... Issue of abortion came front and center, of course, in 2022, for the first time, really, since the 1970s as a principal issue for the electorate. Um, First, it was thought that there'd be a tsunami of Democratic voters, liberal voters coming to vote because of it. Then it was supposedly had faded out, but then it looked like it came back. Uh, before the election, and it did motivate a lot of leftists uh, and pro-abortion people to go out and vote. Uh, To what extent do you think people see uh, the issue of abortion as liberty for women as opposed to liberty for the most innocent of all, which is the unborn, who don't even have a chance if they don't get the life that liberty makes irrelevant if you don't have it?
3: Yeah. I mean, that's really what this entire debate hinges on. I mean, I was just having a conversation with some friends about this the other day and you know, on the pro-choice or pro-abortion side, they're selling liberty as, you know, the woman's right to choose what she does with her body. Um, But on the pro-life side, people define that as what about the rights of the life inside, inside of her? And that's also where the debate comes from. Well, when does it become a life? Because for most people, if they look at it as a life, it's harder for them to justify abortion. Even if you're talking liberty from the woman's perspective, you still have another human being who is not able to make their own decisions so i think that's what a lot of this a lot of this hinges on and it also kind of kind of uh- is uh, it's also kind of a microcosm of how different people view liberty in general, and I, you know, I won't get into all that. But I think with the abortion issue, it was it it wasn't a primary issue, but it was big enough to make a difference, and it had faded out. But then, uh, you know, that uh, S- Senator Lindsey Graham was very instrumental in bringing that back when he made that proposal in the Senate to have a federal uh, a, a federal legislation on abortion rather than leaving it to the states. So I know there are a lot of people mad. At him about that but i think that's why abortion made a resurgence shortly before the midterms took place
4: so didn't his a, bill also yeah it was like it was a, it was a uh, federal legislation about abortion uh, which was exactly the opposite of what so many conservatives said in the wake of uh, uh of the decision which was now this was going to go to the states and and not be and then didn't his his measure exactly. also not contain
2: an exception for uh for rape uh as well Right. That's always used as the big sticking point. Let me ask you this. Rape and incest in the life of the mother, of course, which all of which are pretty rare compared to elective abortions, which are the great bulk of them. Andrew, let me ask you, you this. You and Scott are proclaimed probably big L as well as small L libertarians. How do you weigh the right of the mother to control her own body versus the right of the child to be born
1: well, I tend to be more pragmatic just because of how divisive the issue is. I tend to think that so majority of abortions that you just noted are elective. You know, they have nothing to do with rape and incest. Rape and incest account for about a fraction of all abortions. So I think that if you imp- impose that that loophole of saying, OK, you, you can abort the child if it's a result of rape or incest, but you save millions of other babies. I think that is the a realistic approach to take the whole abortion issue. I mean, It'd be great if there were no abortions, but the, the way the United States is today. Today, I think that is the more pragmatic approach. What I find interesting when every time there's an uh, abortion hits the headlines in the United States, it has it has an effect up here. Every time it happens, a provincial leader or the prime minister will say, "Oh, we will defend abortion rights," and you know that's the it's, we will make sure that anyone can have abortion anytime they want because we 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 up here we really don't have any abortion laws. You can have yeah you, ha- you can have an abortion in the second or third trimester. So I find when that SCOTUS uh, uh, issue happened, right away Trudeau was saying you. Can have an abortion whenever you want and provincial leaders just and mirrored even conservative ones mirrored what he would say you can believe that that
4: the unborn have rights and also that you favor uh, uh allowing abortion in the case of rape because in that case the uh the female uh the mother has not consented to any act where pregnancy could result and so she is cannot be morally held to suffer the consequences of her decision she has made no decision she has been had a a crime uh committed upon her and it's no tension i think in the law or a conservative perspective to say that abortion is allowed in that instance um okay
2: thank you scott thank you andrew thank you jeff and our power trio will be back for more analysis of the state of liberty and order circuit 2022 in just a moment
0: freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and red. This is Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides, a production of LibertyNation.com, going after what the politicians really mean and making it all clear for your freedom and your liberty. Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides.
2: We are back on our roundtable discussion on the state of liberty and order circa 2022, joined by Liberty Nation's Power Triangle, socio-political correspondent Jeff Charles, legal affairs editor Scott Cosenza, and economics correspondent Andrew Moran. So, Andrew, let's discuss economics. Thirty trillion dollars in national debt for the United States of America. That is an affront to the liberty of future generations. We're going to have to pay it off. Is it more one party or both who have allowed this to spiral out of control? And can we reverse this curse? And if so, how?
1: Well, first, it's not just $30 trillion. It's also $120 trillion in unfunded liabilities and expenditures. But both parties have been atrocious on the national debt issue. Bush doubled the national debt. Obama tripled it. Trump accelerated this growth. Biden is just maintaining the status quo. It's a joke at this point. I mean, you, you look at you look at when Bush was in power, Democrats would complain about the national debt and we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. Then Obama took power. Republicans, they're the ones who complained about the national debt and said, "Oh, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling." Trump took office. Democrats complain. Biden's in power. Republicans complain. So it just, it's just it's it's it, it's it's kicking the can down over both parties, and they've done a massive job at that. Now, can you reverse? course? Most likely not. I mean, you look at the 2010 or 2011 sequester, you know, Republicans, Democrats, they reached a deal whereby they cut 85 billion dollars in spending, but at the same time, the rate of uh, debt growth accelerated. So only in Washington can you have a spending cut while the national debt still grows. Perfect. So overall, there's no way of reversing anything. The issue is going to get worse, and now you have rising interest rates, and just gonna, that's going to compound the problem and lead to you know eventually, long term, you're going to have to make all these sacrifices that I'm not sure politicians are willing to make. Eighty five billion at this
2: point in time is has become a rounding error for the federal. Budget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it really has. And Jeff, I don't see anybody in either party talking about the national debt. We used to call it a ticking time bomb. They have the national debt clock, which you really have to avert your eyes to realize the kind of debt the country is piling up. But why is it that nobody wants to even discuss uh, the national debt, not to mention making it a central issue.
3: You know, I think it's because people don't think that they're going to have to deal with the consequences of it. They think it's going to be, that's why the can keeps getting kicked. You know, people talk about there being a uniparty, not if there was one issue that would be the best to prove that with the best evidence that there is a uniparty party is a national debt because just like Andrew so expertly explained both parties have done it and it's not even that like you can say one party is worse than the other that's that's not even the case they both work together to continue blowing out the debt I, mean, I remember when I was younger in my 20s that was always a big deal oh we got to deal with the debt deal with the debt now the government didn't really care about it but at least people uh, on the on the airwaves and interwebs would pretend to care about it you know we get these people in there they do nothing about this nobody talks about it i think that right now us having this conversation is probably the only political outlet that has talked about the debt since like
1: 2010. Indeed, Tim. Tim, if I may just make one make one point before you uh, go to Scott. There is actually one person in Washington who's actually discussed the national debt every single year, and that's Rand Paul. Ever since he arrived to Washington, every wow. year he's proposed a balanced budget amendment, and Republicans continually deny him that. I remember one of the, late, the latest ones. He said, "Let's balance the budget in a year." Lindsey Graham went ballistic and just kicked him off the Senate floor and said, "Oh, you know, you're you're an ally of Putin if you want to balance the budget." So Rand Paul, oh, give the kudos to him there. He's one discussing it. So, Scott, yeah. uh, I think it yeah, because because
3: because what Vladimir Putin wants is for us to bounce our budget. I'm, I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> what he wants.
2: So, Scott, I think it was in 1964 that Barry Goldwater said, "There's not a dime's worth of difference between the parties." Or maybe it was George Wallace. I forget. But the point is that you know we're in a bipolar sort of political climate. Always have been two party system. How much difference do you see between the parties? Is it a dime's worth of difference or not, even a dime?
4: Uh, probably not on the dead issue. And I just want to quickly answer your original question. You, you said that this is, a, you know, uh, it's outrageous to to kind of saddle future generations with this, Tim. And I think that uh, both that you're right and also that they won't be saddled with it, that, you know, we've already uh, got a declining birth rates so be below the replacement rate, and in in two generations or maybe three, uh, when the debt service on that debt becomes more than anybody could spend on anything else, they're just going to say, you know what, you loan these baby boomers and these Gen Xers and whoever else this money get it from them. We're we're not paying. So whether that means they go to a, a different currency or inflate the dollar. To where you know you have to carry a truckload around to buy a stick of gum. There'll there'll be some way to get out of it, I think, uh, and uh, or or just the collapse of the country. But but I don't think that future generations will be saddled with it. I think they'll duck out.
1: Well, actually, there will be a solution by just printing half of the nation's money supply, just paying off debt that way, and then having a currency crisis. So I guess uh, so that 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 would be the solution, Scott. So okay. so
2: a- Andrew, <laughs> what is what is the uh, short and long term? impact of both the debt and unbalanced budgets where we show huge deficits of in the range of four trillion dollars every single year what's the short and long-term impact because most politicians and citizens i think uh, don't think about it and don't believe there's any kind of
1: real impact on them well, short term, I mean, you're already starting to see it. the The interest payments are about four hundred to five hundred billion dollars a year. That's more than some of the some some of the Washington uh, departments have. Uh, this eats to this eats to this eats. To, well, in theory, anyway, it would eat into the budget, force politicians to cut back, but they haven't done any of that. Long term, that's going to eat into, as, as Scott alluded to, when you have uh, higher debt, higher interest rates, your your debt service, your debt servicing payments gonna be about a trillion dollars. That that's going to be eaten. That's going to force the government to start slashing entitlement spending. Nobody wants to. Do that of course so then maybe that would lead into defense spending or military spending nobody wants to do that of course so overall i i may i may have kid before but what you're going to have to do is you have the federal reserve just co- completely print more money buy more treasury bonds and that would be the solution to the problem but of course that's not a that's not a viable solution for the health of the economy future generations but of course how reckless politicians are and policymakers are that's the only thing i can think of how you can you know solve the debt issue but that's not gonna happen i mean look at uh comptroller david m walker he He talked about this back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, how eventually everything is spiraling out of control. Today, he predicted back then, but nobody heeded his advice. Nobody's going to heed anyone's advice today.
2: So Jeff, uh, we had a change in Congress, not in the Senate, but in the House, with Republicans now in charge with a very slender majority, even smaller than the Democrats had last time. But they control the purse strings now. So do you think the Republicans are going to pretty much shut down the spigot on spending uh, or are they going to go along to get along thinking that in 2024, since people seem to care more about order and spending than liberty, that they're going to go in another direction?
3: <laughs> my, my laughter is my answer. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, of course they're not. I mean, they're going to talk a big game and then they're going to get into office just like they always do. I mean, that's how they get elected. I mean, Republicans and conservatives have been going. that We've seen this movie before, right? I mean, they've been going through this for, for decades. So I don't expect them to do much. I expect them to do something, you know, posturing wise, and maybe they'll take some action here and there. But in general, I don't think that Republicans are going to be serious enough to actually do much to uh, put a stop to the agenda here. I mean, I guess one thing that Republicans can take solace in is that it will be harder for Biden and the Democrats to push the the more radical elements of their agenda through. But as far as overall change, I wouldn't expect to see a whole lot.
1: The Republicans already said that they're not going to go over this certain amount. So I think Biden, he wants about $1.7 trillion dollars in new spending. And the Republicans said, sure, but we're not going to go over that amount. So they're, they're already laying out their cards. It's ridiculous. The joke. A line he, in the he, sand. He just, and this <clears throat> is supposed to be their bread and butter. This is what the <clears throat> conservatives are supposed to be good on. But they're, they're terrible at it. Reagan, hey, everyone loves Reagan, but he was terrible at fiscal management too. Republicans, this whole idea they're great at this and the fiscal conservatives, it's a joke.
2: Well, what Ronald Reagan essentially did was he made a deal because the Democrats controlled Congress. He was going to get defense spending that he wanted, but only if he allowed the domestic spending that Tip O'Neill wanted in return. And that was the deal with the devil, must some might call it, that they did make. But we're going to use this as an opportunity to take one more quick break, and then we'll come back with our power trio to wrap up our discussion on the State of Liberty circa 2022.
0: For your freedom and your liberty, Liberty Nation with Mark Angelides.
2: And we are back for one more shot at you on our roundtable discussion on the state of liberty and order, circa 2022, joined by Liberty Nation's Power Triangle, economics correspondent Andrew Moran, legal affairs editor Scott Cosenza, Scott Cosenza, I should say, and socio-political correspondent Jeff Charles. So, how significant? will elon musk's purchase of twitter be to the future of liberty i'm going to ask you first jeff
3: yeah i think it's going to be great i think it's already been great and elon musk has it's funny because elon musk hasn't done a whole heck of a lot because he just took over about a month a month ago but even in that short time period he has made twitter more fun more free and, um, people who are not part of the, uh, the censorship crowd, the, the pro censorship crowd are loving it. And I think that he's even winning over people who were leery of him at first, because if you remember shortly after he took over, a lot of advertisers paused their advertising. Well, they just, and it, just, it was just announced the uh, last week that, Apple and Amazon have come back to the table. Elon Musk went to meet with Tim Cook of Apple. And so the the attacks are still coming from the from the predictable sources. But in general, I think people are liking the platform more. I mean, especially from a liberty perspective. But even if you look at victims of child sex trafficking, he has tamped down on that more in that one month. Than, than the prior leadership did in years, he has d- went gone leaps and bounds beyond what his predecessors did, and, and he's not even through yet. So overall, I am, I am a. I the term is bullish on elon musk and liberty and twitter because i i really think that he is creating a new platform for people to express ideas but not even just for free speech even for more offerings he's talking about competing with youtube having more long-form videos allowing for more of those twitter spaces as well so i'm um, as a twitter as the liberty nations resident twitter addict i am very much uh optimistic about this
2: well andrew uh, can take some credit too of course, he gets paid to follow Twitter, but nevertheless, <laughs> he does a fantastic job of it. But, you know, let's go to Scott for a second. You know, Scott, socialism used to be a dirty word in American politics for decades during the Soviet era and the rise of Mao in China and all of that and Eastern Europe and the Iron Curtain uh, is socialism still a dirty word now?
4: Sadly, no. The beautiful Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Tim, has gone a long way with her uh, Democratic Socialists of America, I think, as uh, one of the groups that she uh, claims membership in. And, and they've gone a long way to kind of soften it over. And, of course, with a, a compliant press who uh, is made up largely of people who are, uh, I won't call, you know, all mainstream press members, socialists, but they definitely have a sympath- uh, sympathy towards uh, socialist policies, I think, in, in a lot of instances. And they also see those policies, uh, as I view, the, those big box media players uh, from the outside. You know, They think it's a nice thing to kind of help along people that aren't doing well. And uh, based on their preferences for that kind of uh, paternalistic behavior, they're they're favoring, you know, putting their fingers on the scale. And so it just sort of aids socialistic ideas. And so, no, we've got to bring it back the hate Tim for socialism and its policies and the name of uh, uh, the name itself. Uh, it is about um, stealing from people, uh you know, stealing from your neighbors on this side of the, the street to give to the neighbors on that side of the street because you think it's a good idea and uh if it's legalize, a good idea you should just legalize legalized theft
2: you're... is are you saying it's legalized death scott yes. calvin coolidge calvin coolidge Absolutely. said that so let's talk about the media for a second guys uh, andrew thought experiment here how would the country be different if we had instead of a predominantly liberal big media a truly balanced, impartial for the state, uh, as envisioned when the press was given uh, broad protections in the First Amendment to the Constitution.
1: Well, before I answer, I was like, I just like I mentioned about something about Jeff. Uh, I I can't disagree with anything he said, but I would say that you should be cautious about Elon Musk's everything app on Twitter. So I'll let our I'll let our listeners uh, know, research what I'm talking about. As opposed to your question, it's hard to say. Just because what's what, what is journalism? What is media? Is it just you know repeating what the government says and letting people decide for themselves? You know what's right and what's wrong. Is it just acting as stenographers? Is it you know challenging the 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 the, the 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 big government i mean you look at Eli, uh, when i think of journalism i think of julian Assange. i think of what he did and expose the government and what happened he got thrown in jail or he, he thrown in you know and in, in, in down beneath the low and uh you know just being buried in, in darkness so uh it, but the balanced press it's hard to see what that is I, I think it's just best to look at all these different sources come up with your own conclusions read read, read read between the lines i think there's a great quote from uh, george carlin when he said there's three things I, I do in life i don't listen to the government i don't trust the press and i think to myself and i think that's the greatest uh, uh model everyone should have in life
2: okay i'm gonna have to write that one down and then follow it jeff one of the things that's been big in the news lately is critical race theory which essentially divides the country into victims and perpetrators how far will this toxic theory go do you think um or is broad pushback uh, likely to reverse the trend? And if so, will it happen anytime soon?
3: Right now, it is hard to tell. Uh, those who are pro- uh, proposing uh, elements of critical race theory in schools and the military and in other institution seem to have the other hand, uh, the, uh, the upper hand, I'm sorry. And the the issue for people who oppose what critical race theory teaches, they're behind. Because they didn't realize this stuff was going on over the past decade or so, they've been pushing this in K through 12 classrooms, especially in public schools. Now they've got it into the, you know other institutions, and it's even in, in the media and even in even in the uh, even in corporate America. But there is a backlash, and it and it, it appears to be growing, especially on the school front, but even uh, in in a wider sense. There are people who are pushing back against these ideas. Um, I'm not sure which side will win out um, long term. That that's re- what, we'll, what what the nation's really going to be seeing coming up. But I think it's going to be the side who addresses the problems that CRT claims to be addressing.
2: So, Scott, critical race theory, the left says it doesn't exist. There are no courses, critical race theory. It's a myth. And it's true. There are no courses in it. In fact, it's worse than that because it's in, it's included in every single curriculum. It's It sort of runs through as a theme in curricula, doesn't it? Tim, uh, when I was in college, we had a,
4: a, a really good program, which was called Writing Across the Curriculum. It was a measure to increase the writing uh, uh, skill of all the students. And the idea was if you have a science class, you should require at least a paragraph, you know, on the exam about something. And, and just it should be in every place throughout the curriculum in order to build up. And that's unstated what they've done with critical race theory. It is across the curriculum. There is no, uh, you know, there was a, a libs of tick tock uh, clip I saw this week of an English teacher who was denigrating the rules of English and calling them a racist as, as, as somehow a race had anything to do with the construction of the rules of English. Uh, but I just want to say. One thing about your earlier question, uh, uh, when you said that uh, you called the liberal, uh, the media liberal, and I just want to say that I disagree with that entirely. I know it is statist and it is establishment, but it's not liberal because liberals would say to that lone kayaker on the beach in California, why would you
2: arrest this person? That's
4: madness. That's
2: what a liberal would say. You're right. But at the same time, I can also say that. It doesn't seem like there are too many old time liberals left anymore, as evidenced by the free speech movement in the 1960s, coming full circle now to where Matt Hentoff is dead in more ways than one. Yes, it's the same crowd now that wanted.
3: There is Matt Taibbi, though.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, we can we can. Thank God for him, because he is a truly honest, independent journalist. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much. That's it for our power panel discussion. Our thanks to Andrew Moran and Scott Cosenza and Jeff Charles. I'm Tim Donner. Mark Angelides will be back in the host seat next week. In the meantime, remember to go to LibertyNation.com, where truth is making a comeback.
0: Where can you find news with honest and informative analysis? Judging by. Deconstructing President, threats to our liberty. To taking on the establishment media. Really? Imagine that. Applying America's founding principles to the issues of the day. Politicians, what are they concerned about the most? News that is produced by conservatives. Their own political fortune. For conservatives. Subscribe to LibertyNation.com YouTube channel, where facts matter.